What if we told you that diversifying your portfolio could also help create and save jobs? With just 2,000 ringgit, you can help support national growth by investing in SMEs that are the backbone of our economy via equity crowdfunding with Funnel, a trusted and easy-to-use platform with diverse investment structures. Accelerate Malaysia's success with Southeast Asia's largest platform for private investments. Visit funnel.com slash ECF. That's F-U-N-D-N-E-L. Hashtag Kita Jaga Kita Bersama Funnel. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. Now, What's in a name? As reports surface that Facebook is intending to rebrand itself, uh, we take a look at the timing and the pushback that the technology giants are currently experiencing. Matt, um, did you think you'd be talking about Facebook again this week? Hey, Richard. Well, I expected to be talking about it to some extent. I mean, on the show last week, I mentioned that we'd come back to the idea of how we pay for services and mm. who those services actually serve in terms of, you know, who are the users, who are the customers, even the issues like uh, who are the privacy controls there to protect? Are they there to protect us or are they there to protect the advertisers. Now, what I totally didn't expect was this story that I think broke on The Verge earlier this week, which is that Facebook may rename itself um, as soon as next week uh, when it stages its annual Connect conference. Mm -hmm. And that would be a new holding entity. It would be a new umbrella for the company to park all of those different elements like Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook under as individual units. Mm. Uh, what do you think of the timing then? I think it's quite an odd decision. You know, obviously a, a rebranding exercise of this scale is not something that's usually embarked on in a hurry. So I don't think we can look at what's been happening with Facebook over the past few weeks and say that a, a rebranding is a response that the company has come up with to deal with or to escape from all of this negative publicity, because mm. there's simply far too much at stake to do something that is so structurally far-reaching uh, in in haste. So, mm -hmm. you know, just from a, a design and a strategy point of view, this kind of rebranding exercise typically takes six months to a year. Sometimes it takes even longer than that. Mm -hmm. And if that is the case, then, you know, credit to the advertising agencies that may have been involved with this uh, for, for keeping the, the lid tamped down because they must have been working on this for a very long time. And there don't seem to have been, uh, you know, certainly any concrete rumors floating around that this was in the works. Mm -hmm. So if these reports are true, that Facebook's identity makeover is imminent, I would have expected them to to wait a while to make the announcement, you know, given what's swirling around the company at the mm. moment, because I would advise any brand that I was working with to delay that kind of momentous decision. Right. And, and is that because of the negative publicity that the company has been attracting? Well, just this week, there was an announcement that Facebook was fined over £50 million by the UK's competition regulator, uh, which relates to the company's takeover of the GIF creation site Giphy earlier this year. 
So, you know, negatives are always a good reason to delay, but even positive stories, if they're big enough, are something to avoid. You don't want to go up against yourself because, you know, you're drowning out your own share of voice. You want Mm. big announcements to be judged on their own merits and to dominate the news cycle because there's nothing you can do to stop your competitors from trying to limit or hijack some of your limelight with their own tactics. But certainly you don't want to compete for space with other stories about your own company. So when uh, Google rebranded as Alphabet back in, uh, I think, 2015, the idea was to convey the notion that the company was more than a search engine. They were spearheading AI research. They were developing uh, autonomous vehicles, or rather they are. They're pioneering augmented reality. They're creating smart city developments and, of course, new health technologies. And, of course, they are still running that financially important search division. Mm -hmm. But you ask yourself, you know, how successful has that rebrand been? It was six years ago, and we still mostly refer to the company and all its associated entities as Google. Uh, When Snapchat decided that it wanted to be a a hardware camera manufacturer with a social arm, it became Snap Incorporated. But Mm -hmm. we still struggle to see it as anything but Snapchat. The rebranding hasn't really altered our perception. Yeah. Have we got any inkling as to what this uh, new name for Facebook might be? Well, we don't know. The Verge suggests something uh, Horizon-related. So uh, Horizon Worlds is one of the next-generation Facebook uh, augmented reality and virtual reality link products that the company has already demoed. It's also shown us a a workplace collaboration service called uh, tentatively Horizon Workrooms. Uh, And, you know, all of this is on point with the show we did back in August. I think it was MSP176 which was about various companies seeking to develop their own interpretations or or flavors of the metaverse. And of course, Facebook's own stated intention is to pursue and develop those metaverse-linked technologies. In fact, you know, to become the dominant or preeminent metaverse provider. So this rebranding would help to create that image, to create the idea that Facebook is simply a cog in something bigger. Now, some people might argue that uh, it's as much of a negative as it is a positive. Uh, A lot of people already think that Facebook is too big and too powerful, signaling that those uh, social media networks are simply a cog in something much larger might turn out to be an own goal in the long run. But from a branding perspective, it is quite a solid idea. If you pull it off successfully, then you're creating lots of different boxes for all of those products and services to sit in, each with its own brand and identity within this large group. Uh, a bit like you know the way KitKat and Milo sit within that larger group that is Nestle. Got it. Is it likely then to dispel any of that negative publicity that Facebook is is currently attracting? Well, that's a much more complex question to answer. I mean, my feeling is no. So when you look at companies that have rebranded to escape a toxic reputation, two of the most prominent uh, have been Anderson Consulting, which of course became Accenture, and of course the private security company Blackwater, which became uh, Zay and then Academy. Uh, I don't think uh, Facebook can be compared to either of those examples. 
But the larger issue is the role of Mark Zuckerberg himself. Mm. He retains the majority of the voting shares within the current Facebook structure. So he's much more closely linked to the identity of the company than, say, Bryn and Page were to Google. Right. And, you know, they've successfully been able to put them uh, some distance between themselves and Google since the company became Alphabet. Uh, similarly, we've seen a Microsoft without Bill Gates. We've seen an Apple without Steve Jobs. And of course, the jury is still out on the Bezos-free Amazon. Hmm. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be any similar succession plan in, in place for uh, Facebook. Well, yeah, in terms of whatever the company becomes, whatever it calls itself, it's still going to be Mark Zuckerberg's company. And I think that symbolizes those differences in perception between those that view Zuckerberg's role at that new organization in a positive light and, you know, everybody else. Uh, in that context, I think it will be hard to create that sense of space in the company. Uh, as to the issue of why do this at all well with the information that's come out of facebook over the past few weeks whether officially or through leaks we know that the company is very concerned about its appeal to gen z and gen a consumers mm. and that's a generation that sees both facebook and instagram as being you know tools that are simply old and that's the same demographic that will be crucial a, a crucial demographic for those metaverse developments yeah, you know, we have this situation now where a lot of VR and AR tech is quite expensive. So while it may appeal to a younger user base, it's actually those child-free uh, Gen X and Gen Z consumers who've got the money to buy these kinds of products. Mm. But as with any new technology, we're seeing those costs drop. We're seeing the devices get smaller. We're seeing them become more usable. More importantly, I think they're becoming more adaptive. And as we pointed out in the previous Metaverse episode, Facebook is up against uh, competitors. It's up against companies like Epic Games, the makers of Fortnite. Mm. All of these people want to define and own these new Metaverse spaces. Would a new name be enough uh, to allow or enable uh, whatever Facebook becomes to appeal to that demographic? I mean, it's certainly not a done deal. Uh, a, a brand is always going to be more than a name. So let's not forget that the metaverse isn't the only development that Facebook has in the wings. There are still plans for some kind of uh, cryptocurrency or blockchain-backed payment system. So a lot is going to depend on the kind of VR and AR-based products that Facebook is able to release. Uh, as with demo tech, like uh, the Horizons uh, tech, a lot of the Facebook-branded advances recently have been in those working spaces, whether mm -hmm. collaborative or remote working. Now, that's not going to appeal to teens. Even if you're able to introduce these products in the context of education and link them into those wider metaverse products, I think that chunk, that group of services, is going to be far less appealing to that younger demographic, which will be looking for a metaverse that is dominated by entertainment. So if that newly rebranded Facebook holding company can create products that have their own brand identity separate from you know, that perception of Facebook and Instagram being old, that mm. appeal uh, to those younger consumers, then they may be able to create the metaverse that Mark Zuckerberg dreams of. Uh, you know, it gets gets me thinking about 
how are governments and, and politicians and, and social organizations likely to respond to a new Facebook with an even larger remit or, or, or sense of purpose? That's why I say that this announcement, if it does go ahead, is oddly timed. You know, a great deal of attention has been given to Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower. Uh, and there's also been a lot of attention given to Facebook's response to the evidence that she's presented. And people have remarked on the lack of response from the CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, and the COO, Sheryl Sandberg. And a lot of the Facebook execs who have been wheeled out in front of the media have been accused of doing a rather, you know, milquetoast and lackluster job of defending the company. Now, again, you know, maybe that's another one of those distortion lens issues. We know from watching Trump surrogates uh, as they defended the former US president throughout his tenure that it was far more important to speak to that audience of one, to Trump himself, than it was to successfully defend those positions. So perhaps we're seeing a similar filter scenario at play, that it's more important to repeat those talking points for a specific viewer or a specific group of viewers than it is to have the wider public actually believe them. Right. Okay, uh, when we come back, how much do we really have to fear from big tech and who should be governing them? You tuned in to Matt Splained here on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Be free, Malaysia. BFM. 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. This is Matt Splained. Um, Matt, I, I know that you'll want to talk about the role that governments have to play in placing limitations on technology companies. But before we get to that point, I want to ask, how smart are we? Well, that's always going to be a contentious point, isn't it? You know, uh, we like the um, uh, services and devices that companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, TikTok, Samsung, Oppo, Huawei, Netflix, uh, and plenty more offer us. So I'm trying to be as broad as I can there. Uh, as we discussed in the episode about Disney and sentient AI, the corporate leaders in some technology fields are not always the ones that we would expect. And that adage that every company is a technology company now isn't too far from being true. You know, we see this enormous blurring of lines with companies like Nike preparing to sell you digital versions of their shoes and clothes to clothe your avatar in whatever situation you're using it. Our cosmetic companies are working with uh, MMORPGs and creating real-world semi-cosplay looks. And of course, creating health and beauty apps that collect colossal amounts of product-centric data about their users and customers. That speaks to the opportunities that commercial companies see in the technology space. But it doesn't really address that issue of how smart we are and how much agency we have. Well, that's kind of why it's such an interesting question. So the New York Times tech writer Shira Ovide wrote a piece earlier this month that really resonated with me. And she essentially said that each of these scandals, whether it's about Facebook or other tech companies, they're like building blocks that make us a little bit savvier. Mm. So for example, Cambridge Analytica made us more aware 
uh, about what can be done with all those data points that Facebook and other companies collect about us. We now know how countries can act to influence the elections of rival nations using disinformation. We've learned how algorithms can focus our attention and maximize our use time by popularizing extreme viewpoints Mm -hmm. and then provide us with the mechanism to share that information and create those feedback loops that essentially box us in. So every scandal makes us smarter. It reveals more about the motivations and the mechanics of those companies. A few years ago, you know, anyone talking about surveillance capitalism would probably have been branded a conspiracy theorist, but now it's mainstream terminology. We're no longer Mm -hmm. giddy about these companies and their products, and we're having serious conversations about their power and their influence. The disruption effect. Well, that's a, a pretty good way to sum it up, I think. I mean, we've always said that technology moves faster than a society's ability to absorb and adapt to the realities that it brings and alters, especially with that move fast and break stuff model, because Mm -hmm. it puts us constantly into this damage limitation mode. We're constantly sweeping up the mess that it leaves behind. But many of these companies are actually getting to an age and size where they don't move fast and where their own behavior patterns have become to an extent codified. So they've Mm -hmm. become the dinosaurs that they displaced. And this is where we're able to begin that process of understanding how they work and what they really do. You know, as we get more comfortable with the underlying concepts of algorithms, AI, and their uses, we get to that point where we can't be brushed off by some CEO talking about the principles of democratic access and how they hold privacy dear. You know, we understand that when they say democratic access, What they mean is their ability to operate unregulated and to do as they wish with our data, while privacy to them is the proprietary nature of their products and policies that prevent us from finding out exactly what information they have on record about us and which third-party commercial companies they've sold access to that information to. Do you think that's one of the attractions of the metaverse, Um, opening a new frontier to exploit, uh, just as lawmakers have started to get a handle on how to regulate the current incarnation of the internet? No, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't hurt, but I think we'd be slaloming off into conspiracy territory if we explored it too deeply. So at one level, the metaverse is simply a logical progression of the internet, uh, given the technology and equipment uh, that is currently or will soon be available. It doesn't hurt that there's a whole lot of new hardware and online services that companies will be able to sell to us as a result. So I don't see this as any kind of tactical shift, especially as that metaverse currently has no definite shape or composition. Mm. So any moves companies make in that direction are currently just speculative in nature. Uh, Companies like Facebook and Google or or Epic Games for that matter, they're not about to turn their backs on the model that generates their current profits Mm -hmm. uh, just to focus on something that might take another 10 years of intense investment and competition to even define, let alone dominate. Which still uh, leaves with that problem of regulation. And that's one of the things that uh, Facebook has been saying in its own comments. It's been pushing back on lawmakers and saying, you know, you tell us how 
we should be regulated. Mm. And with any big tech company, there's a certain amount of sleight of hand, I think, involved in comments like that. Firstly, we know they're aggressive lobbyists, so they're certainly not going to take a passive role in the drafting and composition of any legislation Mm -hmm. that is there to to overlook them. Uh, And bills like this, of course, take a long time to discuss, to compose, to negotiate, to table, to pass and enact. You know, and we saw that with the the current gold standard of legislation, the EU's uh, data protection regulations, the GDPR, and that was a great tool to govern data collection in the mid-2010s. But mm. by the time it was enacted, the digital world had already moved on. So where do governments fit in? Well, genuinely, I, you know, I'd like to give a definitive answer here, but I don't think that anyone can. You know, the response to the philosophy of moving fast and breaking things may have to be hastily formulated and imperfect bridging legislation. And we've seen something a little bit similar in uh, some countries' response to uh, to their drug laws, where mm-hmm. black market chemists tweak the formulations of synthetic drugs, creating new analogs that skirt prohibition because they're different chemicals from the ones mm-hmm. that have already been banned. So as a result, they have these constantly updating lists of new banned substances. So perhaps tech legislation has to become similarly adaptive to respond to each new iteration. I think where we get into thornier territory is when we start looking at things like intent uh, and the composition of that oversight. Things like uh, publishing the algorithms. Well, that has been one suggestion. Uh, And of course, uh, as we've discussed before, it's not one single algorithm that runs our news feeds, search results, etc. There are lots and lots of them. Some of them are interconnected. Some of them are separate. So yes, there have been calls to make all of that proprietary code more transparent. Uh, If you want a a good example of how even well-meaning algorithms can distort the markets they're supposed to regulate, check out uh, Maya Salabitz's article on Wired.com called The Pain Was Unbearable. Uh, It's a story about a private uh, health company algorithm that a number of US states are using to assess the uh, risk of uh, dependency and addiction amongst pain medication patients uh, and the culture of dissociation that surrounds this kind of tool once it starts to be used in the real world. So she covers uh, how if you have issues with how the code categorizes you, you can't appeal directly to the company. You can only appeal to your state health board. And that board doesn't necessarily know how the company's algorithms work or how or even why it arrives at its classifications, let alone uh having the discussion about why public bodies are relying on a privately held database to make health policy decisions. And what about the case for making that information available to independent research bodies to make their own reports? That's one of the uh, the, the measures that's mentioned in relation to the addiction risk algorithm, uh, making the findings available to academic and research institutions so that One, it's more transparent, but also the findings can feed back into medical thinking so the whole system can Mm -hmm. become more effective. Uh, And they also make recommendations uh, 
on how to improve the tool itself. But even then, those moves can be problematic. Is publishing that information giving hackers the information they need to attack those sites? Mm-hmm. Are you giving governments the ability to snoop on what their citizens or even other countries' citizens might be doing? Uh, you know, China has its great firewall. Other countries are trying to emulate that model, notably Iran and Russia. Uh, Countries are routinely banning tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of IP addresses in a bid to control what information their citizens can and can't see. And as Mm -hmm. we see this growing tide of autocratic action and control, even in supposedly liberal countries, can we trust that the government's trying to limit the reach and activity of tech companies are doing so for our best interests. You know, Mm -hmm. we've seen tech companies push back against uh, attempts by nations to access and monitor user data. There are simply no easy options here. There's also the case for, you know, breaking up companies like Facebook and, and Alphabet. Is it realistic to look at splitting search from health tech, for example, or uh, separate companies for Facebook and Instagram? Well, this point, I think, is something that we need to come back to in another episode because it also relates to uh, the way that very large and rich companies are able to use their their wealth to buy out entire markets. So that Facebook acquisition of uh, Giphy that we mentioned earlier is a good example. Should the leader in social media also be the leader in GIF creation? Mm. Certainly, it makes sense for Facebook but does it make sense for competition and markets? So yes, there is a a greater and more aggressive role for competition regulators to play in this debate. But don't forget that it's also possible for autocratic countries to politicize those competition regulators and use uh, sort of nebulous charges to come down on those companies. And this is where you tell us that the first step is to make these services pay to play. Well, partly, I I think there's certainly a case to be made for more openness, uh, particularly when digital products are supposed to be delivering a public good like health-related risk assessments. Part of the reason that we're twisting ourselves into these legislative pretzels is because of the business models that a lot of digital companies follow, which is essentially monetizing our data. So maybe we should look at limiting how digital companies work with third-party advertisers, maybe even uh, encouraging them to uh, adopt the business model that a lot of gyms use, you know, sign users up for 12 or 24 months and then hope that they don't overuse your service and increase your costs. Instead, We have plans for a tool on Instagram that reminds teens that they've spent too much time watching content that might be bad for them. Why not just take their money and generate your profit by convincing them not to log on in the first place? There's also the option of uh, mandating changes to the way that algorithms work, right? Rather than publishing them or, or making them publicly accessible. Well, that could be another fairly straightforward first step, you know, mandating how those algorithms behave. For example, uh, simply presenting you with the most recent content from within your network, which is how they worked when they first started, rather than nudging you with related content or new people to follow. You know, this is often remarked on as the place where users begin that descent into those rabbit holes of 
more and more extreme information because of those recommendation engines. Mm. So, you know, we could test it out. We could see if it works like a harm pressure valve. But even if we persuade big tech to move from free to paid services, it doesn't address the digital players who have amassed their size and power by selling us stuff. You know, the companies like Mm. Apple and Amazon and Microsoft There's a misconception that fixing Facebook is the same as fixing tech. And I get that people want to look at that simplified model, but even that basket that we put them in, big tech, it really doesn't serve us well because it makes us see more similarity than actually exists. Because Amazon and Facebook are as different as Nestle and Pfizer. So our solutions for deciding how much power and influence they wield have to be different too. But the good thing is, as Shira Ovide notes, we're learning, and the more we learn, the better we can act. Thank you very much for that, Matt. Thank you, my pleasure. Now, as usual, you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt. You can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about CulturePop and its consulting services. And if you did miss any part of this show, don't forget you can download it from wherever you normally listen to your podcast from, or you can use the BFM app. That's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. My name is Rich Bradbury for BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.